morning, everyone. It's Friday. Caitlin is off. Phil Mattingly is here. Where's your coffee? It's, do you, I mean, I don't even know if you can show it. It is hidden and like covered by things, so I literally can't even get to it, which apparently is the only <laughs> safe way to do it. I this only now. bought you one, co- that's not even the one no, control the, room. The one, the spillable one is even underneath <laughs> that. Um, it's an impressive effort to ensure that I don't screw up today. Still like maddeningly, it's been yeah, a great week. That's been... Let's get through three hours. And <laughs> let's get Friday. started with five things to know for this Friday, May 12th. A new era, an uncertain era, frankly, begins at the U.S. Southern border. Title 42 officially expired at midnight. Officials are now bracing to handle Tens of thousands of migrants in the hours and days and weeks ahead. And prosecutors say, meantime, they're filing manslaughter charges against the man who choked Jordan Neely to death right here on a New York City subway. Sources tell CNN Daniel Penny will turn himself in today. And also this morning, Elon Musk says he's picked a CEO to lead Twitter. Several outlets are reporting that he's in talks with the woman who currently heads up NBC Universal's ad business. And this morning on Capitol Hill, Mark Pomerantz is expected to testify before Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee. Pomerantz was a former top prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's investigation into former President Donald Trump. Also, Michael Jordan's dream team jacket from the gold medal ceremony now up for auction. Remember, his shoes were up for auction before. Sotheby's estimates it could go for up to $3 million. CNN This Morning starts right now. on it? I mean, I've been on most Michael Jordan things, but have you seen the, ja- like, that's so vintage 90s jacket, like the really big, puffy warm-up jacket. I love The those. shoes, yeah. The shoes went for a few million bucks. Yeah, that's, you were going to grab Why that for me so, yeah. before I went home, No, it's right? totally in my price range. <laughs> totally. Anyways, we get to serious news this morning. We've been talking all week about the crisis at the border, what was going to come, right, when Title 42 expired at midnight. Well, that happened last night, so we'll see what comes this morning. Border Patrol is bracing. For tens of thousands of migrants who have been waiting to cross into the United States, this is what we've been seeing from the West Coast to the Gulf of Mexico. New overnight, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas issued a warning that the border is not open, but that is not deterring some 60,000 migrants from staging along the border as the clock ran out on Title 42, according to the Border Patrol chief. And a new wrinkle this morning. A judge is now blocking the Biden administration from quickly releasing migrants without court notices The feds say that change will lead to dangerous overcrowding at border facilities that are already under immense strain. The Biden administration has been surging troops, federal agents and government workers toward the southern border as this clock ticked down. So we begin there with Nick Valencia live on the border in a town named Brownsville, Texas. Nick, they're really them, El Paso, feeling the brunt of this. What do you see as I mean, the sun's almost up there. Yeah, we've seen a slight uptick in those sleeping on the streets, but not the chaos that we were expecting. You know, Title 42 Poppy was in effect for three years, but as of 11.59 p.m. Thursday, it's officially over, and with it, ushering in new concerns of overcrowding at the border and what that could mean for cities like Brownsville. Our borders are not open. People who cross our border unlawfully and without a legal basis to remain will be promptly processed and removed. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas issuing a stern warning to those who cross into the United States unlawfully as Title 42 comes to an end. We prepared for this moment for almost two years and our plan will deliver results. The U.S. is now back to using the decades-old Title 8. 
And while that policy allows for migrants to claim asylum, those apprehended under Title VIII for crossing unlawfully could face a more, quote, severe deportation process, a ban on reentry for at least five years, and can face criminal prosecution if they attempt to cross again. We have surged 24,000 Border Patrol agents and officers, thousands of troops, contractors, and over a thousand asylum officers and judges to see this through. Hundreds of miles away from the border, cities have been struggling to house and feed migrants. In Chicago, one building owner says he took in 70 migrants this week. Children um, already waiting for over a week for a location for a shelter. Uh, it was just inhumane what we were witnessing. And in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams signed an executive order suspending parts of the city's right to shelter law, citing the expected influx of migrants. This was a difficult decision for me. Our desire is to manage an hum a humanitarian crisis. There is no end game. Back in Texas, the El Paso mayor calling out an apparent lack of a long-term solution to the border problem. We all know that the immigration process is broken and it needs to be fixed. I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Migrant facilities along the U.S.-Mexico border are strained, and here in Brownsville, the nonprofit uh, Team Brownsville has been overcrowded for the last two weeks. What remains to be seen is whether or not they'll be able to handle the chaos that President Biden says will come. Poppy? Yeah, that's the question. We'll see what actually happens there. Nick, thanks so much for your reporting on the border. Um, next hour, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will join CNN This Morning live in our 7 a.m. Eastern hour. And here in New York, just hours from now, we're expecting a Marine veteran to turn himself in in the killing of a homeless man on the subway. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office say they expect to arrest 24-year-old Daniel Penny and charge him with manslaughter. Now, it's been two weeks since Penny held Jordan Neely in a deadly chokehold. It was 15 minutes. Now, witnesses say Neely was acting erratically on the Manhattan subway. They described Penny approaching him from behind, putting him in that chokehold and pinning him to the ground until he was unconscious. CNN's Omar Jimenez is here. And Omar, what are you learning as we all watch this play out? Well, he's expected to turn himself in a little bit later this morning. Also, his attorneys have really argued that he was doing this for the safety of not just him, but for the people on the subway as well. So what the witnesses there said leading up to this will be critically important here. But bottom line, it has been very controversial, not just here, but across the country. As many feel, no matter what happened beforehand, this shouldn't have resulted in death. It's a killing that's divided a city. Now, Daniel Penny, the 24-year-old U.S. Marine veteran seen here, set to be prosecuted for holding Jordan Neely in a chokehold that killed him aboard a New York subway train earlier this month. Manslaughter here means recklessness or indifference to human life. So much here is going to turn on the specifics, the interaction that led up to it. It's a tricky case. Penny's attorneys releasing a statement saying he risked his own life and safety for the good of his fellow passengers, adding, we are confident that once all the facts and circumstances surrounding this tragic incident are brought to bear, Mr. Penny will be fully absolved of any wrongdoing. The charge comes after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office spent the weekend and much of this week reviewing witness accounts and video of the incident. The medical examiner ruled Neely's death a homicide, determining the cause was compression of the neck. A chokehold. Witnesses on the subway said Neely was acting erratically beforehand. Started to yelling, um, violence, language, 
Um, I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go into jail. Um, I don't have any food. Juan Alberto Vasquez recorded the interaction and told CNN last week that despite any aggressive or frightening behavior, Neely hadn't attacked anyone. Neely's family says the 30-year-old street performer had suffered for years with mental illness and homelessness. While sources tell CNN he had been arrested more than 40 times, including for three assaults, though it's unlikely anyone on the train car that day knew any of that. Neely's death has ignited days of protests. This has been a week of strong emotions in our city. While also refocusing attention on struggles with homelessness and mental illness across New York City and across the country. One thing we can say for sure, Jordan Neely did not deserve to die. And all of us must work together to do more for our brothers and sisters struggling with serious mental illness. And outside the specifics of this case, it's opened up a lot of questions about mental illness, about homelessness, mainly how did Jordan Neely's life get him to the point where he ended up in this circumstance in the first place? So lots of questions around that. His family attorneys say they're going to have a press conference later on this morning to respond to the arrest of Daniel Penny. But it's obviously an arrest they, along with many others, have been calling for for a while now. Yeah. Omar Jimenez, it's great reporting on a very important story. Thanks. So the White House announcing today's scheduled meeting between President Biden and congressional leaders has been postponed. It's hard to tell if that means the talks have stalled or if both sides need more time to prepare for negotiations. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says there just hasn't been enough progress made to have that meeting yet. A source familiar with the meeting tells CNN that White House officials and aides to both McCarthy and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries believe the postponement allows more time for staff-level talks to do that important work, and that would ensure that the next meeting between the leaders would be, quote, more productive. Either way, the government has just a few weeks left until the United States could default, run out of money to pay its bills. Lauren Fox joins us on Capitol Hill this morning. Lauren, I was just talking to Phil about this, and I said, you know what, like, is that, what does that mean? Is that a good thing? It sounds like net-net this could actually be a positive if they're doing work trying to get to a better place. Well, it's always a positive, right? If you feel like you aren't in a place where putting the principles in a room together is going to be productive and you make the decision, we might just need a little more time. I think that's exactly, according to conversations I've been having with staff, where they are right now. They have been having conversations about what the parameters, what the framework of any potential negotiation should look like, but they just have not settled yet on a clear path forward. And that's why they need more time. You know, a lot of aides that I've been talking Talking to say it was probably always a heavy lift to have two big meetings with congressional leaders and the president at the White House within one week. That's not to say that they aren't going to get together next week. They feel like they can continue to make some progress. They met yesterday. Staffers did for more than two hours on Capitol Hill. They are trying to hammer out specifically what they are negotiating. And I know that sounds like it's premature, but it is so important to nail down the parameters of a negotiation. A couple of things that the White House and Democrats want to take off the table is any conversation about repealing parts of the Inflation Reduction Act. That, of course, a signature piece of legislation the president signed last fall. Meanwhile, the White House is signaling a lot more openness to discussing a potential budget caps deal. That is, of course, setting top line numbers of how much the country is going to spend over the next couple of years and how it relates to raising the debt ceiling. So those two areas, obviously ripe for negotiation, Poppy, but there's just a lot more work to do. 
Let's hope they get it done. Warren Fox, thank you. Well, Elon Musk asked his Twitter followers if he should step back as the platform's CEO. They said yes, or the majority of them did. Musk now says he's found that new chief executive. We have the details. Next. And it's a she. And the Boston Celtics narrowly escaping elimination thanks to an epic fourth quarter performance from superstar Jason Tatum. Well, explosions heard in Jerusalem from CNN crews on the ground as a new barrage of rockets was fired from Gaza toward Israel. Islamic Jihad commanders announced it. It fired those rockets toward Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank, calling it Revenge of the Free. Let's go straight to our senior international correspondent, Ben Wiedemann, who joins us. Ben, this is literally happening right above you. Yeah, in fact, uh, we saw two barrages coming out of Gaza, which is just a few miles uh, behind me. Those two barrages were both intercepted uh, by Israeli air defenses, we believe the Iron uh, Dome. So we've heard reports that one house here in Storot was hit. Hit by what is not clear, because what we saw, I mean, literally, it was right above our heads where the interceptions took place. And moments later, we saw things like this, this piece of shrapnel that fell uh, just in front of us and all around us, really. Uh, so the air defenses do appear to be working. Now, just after those two barrages happened, right over here in northern Gaza, we saw a huge explosion and a mushroom cloud afterwards, which was an Israeli airstrike. It's not clear what the target was, but that's the northern edge of Gaza, where oftentimes in the past missiles have been fired in the direction of Israel. Now, this comes after a relatively calm period just after midnight. For about 13 hours, there was very little fire going in either uh, direction. There were hopes that the Egyptian-led mediation uh, efforts would bear fruit. But what we've seen today, Friday, is that uh, that fruit has yet to be realized and that the fire continues. Poppy? And Ben, we were just showing our viewers that absolute panic uh, on, on, on the streets of one of the settlements there. Children, parents just running uh, as this is taking such a toll. And remarkable reporting. Thank you very much. Well, Elon Musk announcing minutes before yesterday's closing bell that he has hired a new CEO to run Twitter without naming her. He says she'll be starting in six weeks and that his role will transition to being executive chair and chief technology officer overseeing product software. Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Twitter is in talks to hire NBC Universal's head of advertising, Linda Yaccarino. Musk conducted a poll last December, asking a Twitter poll, asking if he should step down as CEO. The majority agreed, yeah, probably should. Well, joining us now is CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Sarah, I think what, what I'm so fascinated by is advertising, more specifically advertising revenue, has always been kind of the elephant in the room during Elon Musk's tenure. Uh, this would seem to be a pretty... Uh, good person to address that as an issue? Is that kind of the dynamic of what might be driving this? 
Oh, absolutely. Linda is considered one of the biggest industry leaders in advertising and has been for many years. She oversees a very large budget across so many different platforms, mediums, and events. And so she's definitely the person that you're going to want to have leading your ads business. The question that I have, though, is that for platforms like Twitter, where they've long struggled to catch up to Meta and Google, is that they don't have a lot of small and medium-sized business advertisers. They rely too heavily on the big brands. That's Linda's bread and butter, the big brands. And so I'm curious to see, because uh, we Axios also reported that Linda is in talks about that role. I'm curious to see if and when she comes in, what her plan is for some of those smaller advertisers, not just the big ones on Madison Avenue that she's used to working with. I mean, the, the thing here is you don't know what Elon Musk is going to do in terms of content moderation. The journal points that out this morning, right? So you, uh, big brands want safety. They want to be on a platform where they know what's going to come. That's, that's a interesting needle for her to try to thread when you've still got Elon Musk at the helm, right? And he could change that rule at any moment. It is, but big brands really trust Linda. I mean, she is considered, like I said, the foremost authority on Madison Avenue for the person who they should be and want to be working with in terms of advertising. I actually think the bigger risk is whether or not Linda can convince Elon not to be erratic enough to just, mm. like, fire her in a few weeks. That's the bigger risk. She's got a huge job at NBCU. She's the chairman of all advertising and partnerships. She oversees everything from big sports events to the Olympics. So now you're going to go into this pretty risky situation where you just have to hope that Elon Musk doesn't change his mind. Mind. But you're right. For advertisers, that erraticness it is a little bit of a cause for concern. There's only so much that Linda can do. One thing I'll tell you, though, Poppy, that my sources have told me, Elon Musk hates meeting with brands. He hates doing the advertising circuit. He hates going to these conferences. So if there's one silver lining here, it's that he hates doing it so much. Maybe he's incentivized <laughs> to keep Linda on board just so he doesn't have to go back to doing it. I, I kind of love that? those incentives. I kind of like, love perverse that. incentives, but incentives nonetheless. Indeed, and a she, right? Not, not so many women at the top of these companies. So it'd be a welcome change, Sarah. Thanks very much. Thank you. The FDA easing blood donation restrictions for gay and bisexual men. How this move could really help the nation's blood supply next. And the two men who rocked competitive the, the competitive fishing world in a cheating scandal now sentenced for their crime. We got weights and fish! Get the f out of here! Get the f out of here! More CNN this morning to come after the break. Now, this morning, a major change could help America's blood supply. The FDA announcing that it's making it easier for gay and bisexual men to donate blood. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here with more. Meg, this has been an issue for a long time. Yes. What's changing? So, so finally, I think a lot of people are saying this is really overdue. These yeah. restrictions had gone into place uh, during the early days of the HIV epidemic. And so it was in order to make sure that HIV didn't spread through the blood supply. And so there had been rules specific to gay and bisexual men. And what is changing today is that now the guidelines for who can donate blood are becoming the same for everybody. It's based on individual risk. So it has nothing to do with sexual orientation, sex or gender. And this is really putting the U.S. in line with countries like the U.K. and Canada, which have already done this. Yeah, the U.S. had sort of lagged behind that, obviously. How has the FDA evolved on this? Was it the FDA that had to give this approval? Yes, the FDA is making these recommendations to the blood centers. Okay. And so 
really when this started was 1985 with a lifetime ban on gay and bisexual men donating blood. And that was in effect up until 2015 when they changed that to essentially a year of abstinence that people had to perform before they could donate blood. During the pandemic, they shortened that to three months because there was a shortage of blood. Right. So this is sort of a stepwise change over time. And then finally now they are just changing it so that it is really universal for everybody. I'm interested in the response to the change, but also why the hell did it take so long? Bizarre. No, you're totally right. The American Medical Association and others have been calling for this for a long time. They came out applauding this yesterday. GLAD also came out applauding this, saying that this takes us out of what they called the end of a dark and discriminatory past rooted in fear and homophobia. They did note, though, that there are still exclusions for people who use PrEP, which is the antiviral drug to try to prevent HIV infection. And they really said that still perpetuates a stigma that is happening here. The FDA, though, said that is based on just concerns that HIV could be undetectable if you're taking those medicines to prevent infection. Is it going to make a meaningful difference, you think, in the blood supply? That is certainly the hope. I was kind of shocked to see the Red Cross says only 3% of age-eligible people in the U.S. actually donate blood every year. So, you know, we, we, if you've ever donated blood, you've probably gotten text messages from the blood center saying, we have critical supplies, yeah, please come yeah. in and donate. And so anybody who can be joined to this pool will be welcome. I should do it again. It's yeah. been like years I'm since I've done it. I'm telling myself the same thing. It's super right. easy, super quick, and you You're get right. cookies. Of course, Phil, you probably do it like... No, stop. I just like year. the cookies. Good guy. Make that. <laughs> Thanks, Okay, this story is wild. Two fishermen whose cheating scandal rocked the competitive fishing world sentenced to 10 days behind bars. That's right, an Ohio judge sentenced them to one and a half years of probation yesterday. The two men appeared in court after pleading guilty to putting weights inside walleye at a tournament on Lake Erie last year. Watch. We got weights and fish. Get the f out of here. Tournament officials say they thought the fish seemed too heavy at their weigh-in, so they cut them open, found lead weights and fish fillets inside. The two men lost out on nearly 30000 bucks, and now they're also lo- losing their fishing license for three years. I remember, do you remember when the story called? Yes. It's like, one, it was so overt, the cheating. It was completely insane to me. But also, like, messing around with walleye in Ohio, like, these are my people, like, bad. Idea. Only walleye on a like stick. Like, lucky that they're only going to jail and it wasn't, like, worse. You eat walleye on a stick in Ohio? I mean, you can. I don't think... It's a thing. I know. Go I know. the Minnesota saying. State Fair. Oh, it's okay. Minnesota, not Now Ohio. this. All right. More in the sports realm, I guess. Jason Tatum. He got hot late, helping the Celtics force a winner-take-all Game 7 against the 676ers. Andy Scholes has this morning's Bleacher Report. Hey, good morning, guys. You know, I'm humbly one of the best basketball players in the world. Those were the words from Jason Tatum after turning his night around big time to help the Celtics keep their season alive. Now, Tatum, he was having just an awful night. He missed 14 of his first 15 shots, but then just came alive halfway through the fourth. Tatum hitting back-to-back threes to put Boston up by four with under four to go. Then with under two minutes to go, Tatum coming up with the dagger three. The Celtics forcing game seven back in Boston on Sunday with the 95-86 win. And here was Tatum afterwards. I'm one of, humbly, one of the best basketball players in the world. You know, go through struggles, go through slumps. It's a long game. And, you know, thankful I got some great teammates that held it down. Brogdon, JB, Smart, Al. And they all trust me, right? They tell me, keep taking great looks. It's going to fall. Keep impacting the game in other ways. And all that mattered was we won this game, right? Give ourselves another chance, come back home, you know, for game seven. 
All right, the NFL's regular season schedule is now out, and the team's uh, making the announcement in some very creative ways on social media. But the best video of all was from the Titans, who asked fans to name that opponent on the streets of Nashville. The Boston Bobcats. No idea. No idea. Baltimore Orioles. This one is the Red Stallions. Ah. 49 to 69 or uh, no, 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 I think my favorite was how sure those group of girls were that it was Cowboys, Cowboys. And it was actually the Indianapolis cult. <laughs> it's just too good. And I mean, look, there's nothing like the self-assurance or lack of self-awareness of those at a bachelor or bachelorette party <laughs> in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Andy. Red Stallions. All right, have a good one. Title 42 officially expired at midnight, and now border officials are bracing for tens of thousands of migrants to attempt to cross into the United States. We're going to be joined next hour by Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. That's ahead. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Thousands of migrants lining up along the southern border waiting to enter the United States as this pandemic-era policy known as Title 42 ended Overnight, President Biden saying the migrant surge at the border is, quote, going to be chaotic for a while. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas speaking yesterday. I want to be very clear. Our borders are not open. People who cross our border unlawfully and without a legal basis to remain will be pr promptly processed and removed. We have done all we can with the resources that we have and within the system that we are operating under. It is going to take a period of time for our approach to actually gain traction and show results. And I've been very clear uh, about that. Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona is really taking the Biden administration to task on this. She says the administration's preparedness is insufficient and unacceptable. Let's talk about this and a lot more with CNN senior political analyst and senior editor at The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein. Ron, good morning. Really good morning for good you morning. in Los yeah, Angeles. Right. You, I mean, you have been writing and diving deeply into this issue since Prop 187 in California. That was in the early mm -hmm. 90s, right? And look where we right. are. Look where we are now. And, and, and you make the point that, you know, when we think we have it pretty much right, it's usually suboptimal. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a point over those 30 years where the, the, the mix of policies on the border have uh, have kind of kept everybody uh, satisfied. I mean, it, it, this is a problem that you manage, not a problem that you solve. You either manage it more well or less well. Uh, look, you know, the, the president and the secretary have both said there are going to be scenes of chaos there in the, in the coming weeks. And um, this is already one of the areas where President Biden gets his lowest marks uh, from the public on his performance. So that is probably going to get 
get worse. But I think the history, Poppy, is that the voters who are most concerned about the border tend to be right-leaning voters to begin with, who are very difficult for the president to get uh, on other issues. I think the exception is is Arizona, where I think this is kind of a political problem uh, for him. But in, in the states that are likely to decide the presidency, mm-hmm. uh, there are other things, inflation, abortion, that are probably going to have a much bigger impact on his fate. I would point out, as part of that mix of how hard it is to get this right, you know, the pres- former President Trump on the CNN town hall said that signal very strongly that he was going to resume the practice of separating kids from their parents at the border and then also yeah. went on a video yesterday and promised the largest domestic deportation in American history people going you know basically door to door rounding people up is what he's suggesting and I can promise you that neither of those will be any more popular than the scenes of chaos that you see on the border now you know, Ron, I'm, I'm always struck on this issue. The political expediency or incentives just generally outweigh the policy necessity and has been the case, as you and Pop were talking about, for decades here. But to your point about kind of how the Biden administration views this from the political lens, and I've spoken to them repeatedly about this over the course of the last mm-hmm. couple of years, their concern is pictures of chaos. They don't feel like immigration yeah. pops into the top issues that people are most concerned about until they see pictures of chaos you know, what happens if this becomes a chaotic type of moment for them? Does it end up elevating to a point where they have a significant political problem? Um, you know, Phil, I think in, in public opinion on immigration over decades, over really decades, it's been incredibly consistent. I mean, people do want order at the border. They want the rule of law upheld. Uh, they don't want the they don't want the idea that, you know, people are just kind of en masse uh, illegally entering uh, the country. They want order. Uh, but they also, just as consistently over three decades, uh, have supported kind of realistic solutions uh, for dealing with the, you know, the military millions of undocumented people that are already uh, here. And more recently, we have kind of a third element that's grown uh, in importance, which is that, you know, we don't talk about it much, but from 2010 to 2020, the American population grew slower than in any decade in U.S. history except the Depression. Um, and you see the impact of that in the, the struggles that many businesses are having finding enough workers, which is one of the reasons why the Fed is keeping interest rates high. So in many ways, we are all paying a tax for the lack of population growth through through high interest rates. And we are in this paradoxical situation. Obviously, masses of people lining up at the border is not the solution. But the idea that we are trying to figure out the best way to keep people out while we don't have enough people in the workforce yeah. simultaneously obviously calls for some kind of solution of creating legal pathways to get the workers we need to get the economic growth we want. It's such a good point, and it's so obvious. And there are Republicans even, remember Kevin Hassett in the Trump administration, yes. who has been had been very vocal about we need more immigrants for the economic point you just made, Ron. Before you go, we, have to, we really wanted to have you on also to talk about what the heck yeah. is going to happen with the debt ceiling, because you wrote this great piece back in January that was illuminating to take us all back to 2011 and yeah. remind us why and what Biden learned then in those debt ceiling negotiations that leads to his refusal, maybe that'll change, yes. to negotiate now. What's the lesson? Well, look, uh, President Obama did agree to negotiate with then Speaker John Boehner about the budget in the context of a debt ceiling increase. Obama notably saw it even then as two separate processes. He, he thought the debt, the 
budget negotiation had to balance out internally that the increasing the debt was not something Republicans gave him. But nonetheless, he was willing to tie the two. And Biden was the lead figure in that for, for many months, negotiating with Eric Cantor, then the number two in the House before it uh, broke down. But that process ultimately proved so scarring as the negotiations fell apart weeks before uh, hitting the, um, the, the deadline with the U.S. debt being downgraded, chaos in the markets and this chaotic scramble to avoid a default at the last minute that Obama and his team came out of that convinced that they would never do that again. You know, and it is so the fact that Biden is taking this hard line is so striking because the next time Republicans tried in 2013, Harry Reid was so worried that Biden would want to make a deal with Mitch McConnell that he demanded of the White House that they keep Biden on the sidelines. And in fact, Obama never did negotiate with them again after 2011. He refused to tie the debt ceiling to any budget negotiation. Ultimately, Republicans agreed to raise the debt ceiling. Now, will they do that again? It's a smaller majority. McCarthy is weaker than Boehner, and it's a a House majority that is further to the right. Um, I think Biden very clearly came out of that saying you cannot link these two. But Poppy, he has been equally clear that he is willing to negotiate on the budget itself. And you can see sort of the parameters of a potential deal with permitting reform, some domestic uh, discretionary caps uh, and clawing back um, COVID funds. But he does not want to legitimize the idea of linking the two. Ron Brownstein, great context as always, my friend. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, a conspiracy theory gained steam online suggesting Meghan Markle attended King Charles' coronation in disguise. That's what you're looking at there on the screen. But it was actually this man, Sir Carl Jenkins. He even had to defend himself on TikTok. Someone wrote, I was there, whoever I was, was there to steal the crown jewels. <laughs> I look this way all the time. Good news, Sir Carl Jenkins is here to put the conspiracy to bed for good. This man is not Meghan Markle. No matter what you've read on the internet, the conspiracy theory started racing online after last Saturday's coronation of King Charles. Now, the idea behind it, that the Duchess of Sussex had donned a shaggy wig, glasses, and a big and impressive fake mustache to attend the ceremony incognito. People tweeted, Almost had me fooled, and you're not fooling us. That's not Meghan Markle. It's Sir Carl Jenkins, a very famous Welsh composer who was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 2015. And he joins us right now. Um, Sir Carl Jenkins, thanks so much for joining us. Look, I'm going to be honest. I I watched your TikTok video. That seems like something Meghan Markle would say if she was trying to confuse people and stay in disguise. Can you confirm that was, in fact, you, sir? Yeah, it was I. Yes, I was there. This person. Um, it would have been impossible for anyone to get into that into the Abbey because of the security. You had to present two photo IDs, a utility bill with an address on. No one could have gone through that. And kind of typical aircraft kind of uh, security scanning as well. Okay. So no one got through. Can I just ask, when did you hear about this and what was your reaction? Because this spread like wildfire. There are millions of views. Everybody kind of talked about it. I think the New York Post wrote about it as well. What did you find out? Well, it was was kind of very sudden. It was the next day when my publisher, Boozy and Hawks, my record label, Decca, kind of rang me up and said there's some movement here on on social media. I mean, I don't do social media. I have a Facebook page, but... Uh, my publisher runs that. 
So I know there's been a lot of activity on TikTok that picked up on something I did. Uh, so, yeah, people to come up, or people sometimes do come up to me in the street. But it's been ridiculous this last week. People buy me drinks in pubs <laughs> and, um, and pointing to me. Um, saying you're at the wedding. And I said, the reason I was there is I wrote a piece of music. Um, it was a harp concert, in fact, that I wrote for, Prince, for King Charles when he was the Prince of Wales. Um, and he selected that for one of the pieces during the ceremony. So that's why I was there um, as a composer. They can look up my website and see me there in all my glory, if you like. So, all my glory. Um, and I know I've met, I met, um, I met Meghan and, and Harry twice. Once was when I I, um, I did a concert for them for his charity, um, Combat Stress and Help the Heroes, two military charities. And we performed my Armed Man and Masterpiece. Um, that would be done in Carnegie Hall in January, on January the 15th, incidentally, to get a plug in. Um, but they were there and they were charming. And she was charming and friendly. And um, as I say, I met them twice. Um, and I hope she's not. I really, I hope, really hope she's not upset by all this because it had nothing to do with me. I think she has a few other things to be upset by. Uh, not, not this. Wait, just to confirm, you're you weren't there to steal the crown jewels, right? Just want to make get it on the record here for CNN. No, that's another one. That's another. <laughs> yeah, that's another one that. That's another one that came yeah. up. I was there to see the crown jewels. Sir Carl, I do want to ask you. Certainly not. You make it. What people need to realize is your music, as you noted, was played during the coronation ceremony. You're also releasing a new single, Secura Spring Has Come, next Friday. It's part of your new album, One World, which is coming out uh, in a couple of weeks, all before you set off on a major tour right now. Can you just, like, for people who are putting together who you are, uh, and what you've done over the course of your career, kind of this moment for you musically as you launch your new album and your tour? A summation of what I've done. I mean, I've been a, uh, I left the Royal Academy of Music in London in the late 60s. Um, I worked as a jazz musician. I was in a band called Soft Machine. I toured the States for a bit. I was, wrote quite a lot of television commercials uh, for... De Beers Diamonds, um, Delta Airlines, uh, both of which are tracks that became popular. Um, and now I write what I do, a lot of choral music, um, about 3,000 performances of my masterpiece. Uh, and the new album is One World. It's all about our planet, how we got here. Mm. Um, and it looks at subjects like slavery, um, mendacious leaders or politicians, mm. um, issues facing, facing, facing us at this time on the planet. Yeah. So it seemed a good time to, to look at this. Indeed. Well, Through look, music and words. We will, um, we will let you go, sir, with the beautiful music of Crossing the Stone that was played at the yeah. Coronation alongside uh, the orchestra. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your time. And thanks for confirming your identity. <laughs> thank you, sir. We'll be right back. Thank you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Now this, a retired firefighter on his way to the gym springs into action by running into a burning home, risking his life to save two young girls. Our Natasha Chen has the story. Smoke was just starting to come out. A house fire exploding in the early morning hours last month in Phoenix, Arizona, 
The heavy smoke, flames, and multiple explosions caught the attention of retired fire captain Dana Lambert, who happened to be driving nearby, coming back from the gym. I just went to watch the guys uh, put the fire out. But when Lambert arrived, there were no fire engines on site, and he learned children were trapped inside. The neighbors are screaming that there's girls inside. Propane tanks are, are blowing up on the right side of the house. So um, jumped over the fence, got everybody out to the street because of the explosions and um, worked to get the two girls out. Then heading back towards smoke-filled rooms, he went inside the house again. One of the girls wanted to, to get her puppy. So, so we went back and uh, made sure we got our little puppy. Lambert rescued the puppy and two young girls that day. Their parents were not at home. The girl's father was so grateful Lambert was in the right place at just the right time. I thank him from the bottom of my heart. I'm glad he was there because if it wasn't for him, we don't know what would have happened. He's like an angel sent from heaven. It makes you cry, you know, because you feel good that, that they're safe. Lambert credits the Phoenix Fire Department with a rapid, aggressive response that extinguished the fire quickly. There was a lot of propane and a lot of fire load that was there, tons of pallets, and so it was an intense fire super fast. Dozens of Phoenix firefighters put the fire out and helped keep it from spreading to neighboring homes. But for Fire Captain Todd Keller, Dana Lambert, the retired firefighter, rescue crew member and father, was the hero that day. He's got a lot of experience, and I can tell you that he coordinated with our firefighters on scene to help make this scene and this incident go smoothly. Every fireman that's in a blue shirt would do it exactly like I did. Sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. The ones like this are victories that, that help balance it out. Natasha Chen, CNN, Los Angeles. Wonderful to see what they did. Natasha, thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. The new era at the U.S. southern border, Title 42, officially expired at midnight. If anyone arrives at our southern border, they will be presumed ineligible for asylum and subject to steeper consequences. 400,000 migrants may attempt that journey to cross that U.S. border. We're boarding up like if it were a hurricane coming. The DA's office has decided to move forward with a manslaughter charge. Attorneys for the man being charged, they write, he risked his own life and safety for the good of his fellow passengers. This is an extraordinarily difficult case for any prosecutor. This is about the law. This is about justice, too. An NBC Universal executive is in talks to take over as the new CEO of Twitter. I think it's very important for there to be an inclusive arena for free speech. Musk says he will now become Twitter's chief technology officer. Tammy Maul is among the scientists who've been chasing nuclear fusion for generations. It's no longer a question of whether, it's just a question of when. Let's get to work. My boss called me and I burst into tears. Jokic gets the deflection, spot up for Murray. You bet. The Phoenix Suns season is over. Denver the first team to advance to the conference finals. That's two in a row. Jason Tatum, welcome to Philadelphia. Game seven, I need you to come with the energy, no excuses. What, what was his humble brag? Uh, I'm humbly the best player in the world. One of the best players. He was, he can't believe humbly, humbly. But he is, right? I'm, yes. One, it's true. You told uh, me I who he is this morning. I appreciate self-confidence. I think it's important to your day-to-day -day life. I also, you see Nikolai 
Jokic. Jokic. See, I'm, I'm a, I learn. The one thing I can teach Phil in sports, the one thing is how to pronounce the Serb's last name. And what I, what I love about it is that you taught me in front of the entire television <laughs> audience on live TV. I have to make my husband proud. And the first of many Jokovic, errors of my Jokic, week this week so far. Djokovic, Jokic, and Doncic. That's all you need to know. Got it. But we begin with serious news this morning. This morning, Title 42 is over. It has ended at midnight last night, and perhaps we will see chaos on the southern border. That's certainly what even the administration is expecting and warning of. The Border Patrol is bracing for tens of thousands of migrants who have been waiting to cross into the United States. New overnight, the head of Homeland Security is sending a stark warning. The border is not open. That is what he is saying around 60,000 migrants staged themselves along the border as the clock ran out, according to the Border Patrol chief. And there's new concern that border facilities will become dangerously overcrowded. Overnight, a judge blocked the Biden administration from quickly releasing those migrants without giving them a court date. Well, for days now, we've seen migrants rushing to the border from the West Coast to the Gulf of Mexico, some traveling hundreds of miles, families making the dangerous swim across the Rio Grande with babies and toddlers in their arms only to face razor wire on the other side. All the while, the Biden administration has been surging troops, federal agents, government workers toward the southern border as time ran out on Title 42, which allowed them to turn away migrants before they could seek asylum during the pandemic. Rosa Flores joins us live in the ground in El Paso. Rosa, thank you so much for being with us. You, you have been there not only for the weeks leading up to this, for years covering this issue, and that is the epicenter of what is to come now that Title 42 has expired. But I'm interested in what you've actually seen happen since midnight. You know, we've been monitoring this, Poppy, and we haven't seen a big spike or surge, at least here where I am. What you see behind me is the border wall, and the area behind that is where migrants congregate uh, and wait for immigration authorities to transport them for processing. Now, I should add that the expectations from officials had been mixed about what was going to happen as soon as Title 42 lifted. There were some officials who were expecting a spike, and then there was the U.S. Border Patrol chief Ortiz saying, look, that spike has already been happening. It's been happening for about a week. And he was not expecting a huge uh, spike of 17 or 18,000 migrants as soon as uh, this lifted. But look, the, the Biden administration has been planning for this for more than a year now. And in a nutshell, what the administration has been doing uh, is implementing policies that allow for legal pathways into the United States, but it also builds legal consequences into those policies. And the newest one of those, and probably one of the more controversial ones, is the asylum ban on immigrants who have crossed through other countries and have not sought asylum in those countries. Now, that is one of the first legal setbacks that I want to share with you uh, this morning because the ACLU overnight filed a lawsuit uh, against the Biden administration claiming that that particular policy puts asylum seekers in very dangerous situations. Now, the second legal setback that the administration uh, is facing is a uh, blocking by a federal judge of uh, the administration, allowing the administration to release migrants without court dates. Now, I should mention that this has done has been done in the past, and CBP issued a statement overnight saying that this ruling by this federal judge not only puts the migrants at risk, but also federal agents, CBP officers that are working uh, in facilities because they could be overcrowded. Um, but, Poppy, I should mention 
that these are just two tools that the Biden administration is using. There are myriad of policies. I won't get into the minutiae because it's a lot of it, but there are a lot of different policies and tools. And of course, the surge of resources that this administration yeah. has flooded to the border to make sure that they're prepared. We'll talk to the uh, Secretary Mayorkas about all of that ahead in just a couple of minutes. Rosa, thank you. Well, the crisis at the southern border is being felt all the way here in New York City, where the mayor is now busing migrants out to the suburbs. Polo Sandoval is live at the Port Authority. And Polo, this all comes after the Republican governor of Texas sent thousands of migrants to New York and other so-called sanctuary cities. Well, what are you seeing right now? And Phil, we should note that even before the overnight expiration of Title 42, New York City has been in migrant crisis mode as it struggles to find accommodation and housing for what's currently close to 40,000 asylum seekers that are still in the city's care. So what's yet to be seen exactly how much that number will continue to rise now that Title 42 is no more. But what is for sure is that that number will rise nonetheless, as we have been seeing for the last year, anywhere from 200 to 300 asylum seekers arrive a day. Many more that will be arriving here at New York's bus uh, port authority today. So what the city is doing right now, basically considering all options, that includes Mayor Eric Adams potentially pressing forward, at least eventually, on his uh, efforts to offer willing asylums, voluntary relocation from New York City to some of the nearby suburbs. In fact, we saw that just yesterday as he did send a couple of buses to nearby Newburgh, New York, a short drive north of the city. That prompted some criticism and some outrage from Orange County officials. Uh, they say that they simply lack the resources to take any, any people up there more than the asylum seekers they've already seen. So what we're really seeing now, that Title 42 is a thing of the past, is the growing call here in New York City for President Biden to potentially interject here in a form of an executive action or something else uh, to offer a form of humanitarian assistance to some of the asylum seekers here, potentially giving them the right to work legally. Because when you speak to these asylum, speakers as I, uh, asylum seekers as I have, Phil, they will tell you time and time again that they want to be able to make a living and basically work out of a city shelter. Hola Sandoval, great reporting. Thanks so much. Next hour, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will join us live in our 7 a.m. hour. Former President Trump is appealing a $5 million judgment against him in the E. Jean Carroll case. Carroll accused Trump of raping her in the 90s at a New York department store, then defaming her by denying her claims. And a federal jury this week found Trump liable for sexual battery and defamation. Trump denies knowing or ever meeting Carroll. The verdict has no legal effect on his presidential candidacy. He again denied the accusations and made dismissive comments about Carroll just 24 hours after that verdict. Right. The verdict that included defamation. He did that at the CNN town hall in New Hampshire. In just hours, Mark Pomerantz is expected to testify before Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee. Now, Pomerantz was a former top prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's investigation into former President Donald Trump. Jordan wants to speak with Pomerantz as part of the probe into that investigation, which, of course, ultimately led to the criminal indictment of the former president. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg initially asked a federal judge for a temporary restraining order to stop Jordan's subpoena, but that request was denied. Pomerantz offered, authored People vs. Donald Trump, an insider account about his time investigating Trump. The judge noted the DA's office waived the right to privilege over any information in the book because Bragg's office didn't take any legal action before or after it was published. Just hours from now, right here in New York, we are expecting a Marine veteran to turn himself in in the killing of a homeless man on a subway. 
Manhattan District Attorney's Office says they expect to arrest 24-year-old Daniel Penny and charge him with manslaughter. It's been almost two weeks since Penny held Jordan Neely in a deadly chokehold. Witnesses say Neely was acting erratically on a subway train in Manhattan, and they describe Penny approaching him from behind, putting him in that chokehold, pinning him to the ground until he was unconscious. Now, the law firm representing Penny released a statement saying, in part, their client, quote, risked his own life, safety, for the good of his fellow passengers. And they go on to say, we are confident that once all the facts and circumstances surrounding this tragic incident are brought to bear, Mr. Penny will be fully absolved of wrongdoing. Joining us now is CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst, John Miller. John, you know uh, the issues here in New York City inside and out. This is really complicated and complex, and it gets to bigger issues here in the city of mental illness, how we treat people with compassion, and how we keep people safe. That's why prosecutors struggled with a path here. Detectives did the interviews that day, could have been arrested that night, May 1st. Um, the DA said we wanted to learn more. And then the question was, do we just put this into a grand jury, bring on all the witnesses, play the video, bring in the medical examiner and ask them if they want to indict on and they could give them a selection of two or three charges? Or do we arrest him and then bring that to a grand jury? So yesterday they made the call. Um, he's going to surrender in two hours. He will be brought to arraignment where they will um, talk about the issue of bail. And then next week, that'll go to a grand jury where they'll hear from those witnesses. But they've decided to charge first. Is it a certainty that an indictment will follow? Or, you know, Process-wise, how does this work? So never a certainty. But yeah. as you know, um, the old saying is you can indict a ham sandwich. The high likelihood is uh, that when a prosecutor who controls the process in a secret grand jury lays out that evidence and then asks the grand jury for a charge, that usually happens. This case may be different in that you've got a couple of wild card elements here. They intend to bring on everyone who was on that train, testify as to what they saw, what they heard, and whether they felt threatened. The wild card is, does Daniel Penny, the defendant here, waive immunity at his own peril, go into the grand jury and tell his story there on the idea that if he convinces them of two things, one, I felt a threat against me or others on that train that I had to intervene in. And second, that I never intended to kill him. Because the key to this charge is you cause the death of another human being, whether intended or otherwise, actually unintended. And two, you did so recklessly. So his first shot is in the grand jury, um, but the district attorney's going ahead. I think, um, well, certainly I immediately, you know, when this was first reported and happened, thought about Eric Garner. Here in New York City. And, and then George Floyd. Yes, and then George Floyd in my, my hometown of Minneapolis. What do, how do those, um, those are police officer-induced deaths in this manner, how do those inform what may happen here? Well, police got out of the chokehold business after Eric Garner largely, certainly after George Floyd. It used to be a trained technique. Poppy, when I went through the LAPD Academy, our class was chained, was trained in the carotid artery chokehold to get a resistant suspect um, under control on the idea that it would make them pass out and then they would wake up in a short while later. Clearly, um, this has been reevaluated in terms of the risks. The interesting thing with Daniel Penny is it is highly likely his defense lawyers will show that he was trained in the Marine Corps in the exact same, in the exact same technique where they, as we did in the LAPD Academy, had to practice it on each other um, and that nobody died but from it. But just because you're trained that way doesn't mean that it's 
going to be ruled acceptable. No, I mean he's got a he's got a bar to reach here, um, and so does every other witness um, in the minds of the grand jurors. And that bar is: was there an imminent threat of force by Jordan Neely, mm. who was a man who clearly needed help and wasn't getting enough? And if so, was this reckless um, to do because a reasonable person would have known it would cause his death? So we're at the beginning of this story, not the end still. Really appreciate uh, the analysis, John. Thanks very Thanks. much. So take a look at this. These are live pictures of the border this morning in Yuma, Arizona. You can see the line growing, even though it's just 4 o'clock in the morning. They're up next. We'll be joined by Republican congressman from Texas, Pete Sessions, about ending Title 42. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. As of midnight, Title 42 was no more. That's the COVID-era immigration restriction that allowed border authorities to quickly deport certain migrants. Now, for weeks, thousands of migrants have been lined up at the southern border. And now, states like Arizona and Texas are asking for federal help to deal with the expected surge. Now, you're looking at live pictures of a growing line on the border in Yuma. Joining us now, Republican Congressman from Texas, Pete Sessions. He's also a member of the Financial Services and Oversight Committees. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I want to start with, I think everybody was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. What have you heard from local officials, from, from folks that you talk to regularly down back in the district or just in the state generally about what they've seen so far? Well, the so far is what is the huge number of people there anticipating about 150,000 people at the border waiting to come across and to hear the, the news and the reporting uh, about what is expected. I heard for the first time this morning on CNN that this administration has been planning for over a year for this. But the problems that we have with that is they did not coordinate with local people. The, the dangerous conditions that exist along the border in these detention centers uh, for ever since uh, President Biden has become president are dangerous, the overcrowding, the embarrassment of what is happening. And now they're going to, instead of taking in about 8,000 people, more or less around the border, now 150,000 persons surge. It will mean new drugs, new violence, new problems. And I think that this comes from people in Washington who refuse to come to the border and actually see how dangerous this circumstance is. People's lives, people's health, uh, people who come here after a long journey, uh, and they, they face tremendous odds. We are not prepared for this. And I think we heard the report out of New York City. They cannot handle this search. Over 5 million people have been brought in, 1 million who were uh, not caught. Now we're going to near that what would be 15 million people uh, number by the end of this year. And it, it's staggering that we allow this. What, what in your mind did the administration not do because I think if there's one area of agreement between Republicans and Democrats, the system is broken, right? I don't think there's any argument over that. I understand that administrations have unilateral authorities that perhaps this administration didn't use as much of or uh, all of that you would have liked. Um, but I struggle to find how the administration can do something that's going to be a panacea when Congress hasn't been able to move forward on anything to actually fix a very broken system. 
Well, we have been in that, and Phil, you're exactly correct, that Congress has been in this circumstance for quite some time. But we still have to worry about the lives and the safety of the men and women of law enforcement, the Border Patrol that are there. And for now two plus years, we have had dangerous conditions along the border. We've had some 15 Border Patrol agents die of COVID. Uh, they are the, the rules that are being placed on them uh, about picking up people and handling them. It is a mess. This could be done far differently, like Donald Trump did. Well, okay, perhaps, but that's not my point. My point is is that this is as chaotic as Afghanistan was, and the administration came back and said they were happy with it. This meets their needs, and it is an embarrassment. And we're now asking for, through what would be Ron DeSantis' order, that the federal government, who has full right and responsibility to take this green light off and to appropriately handle what we're doing. They have new uh, 1,500 new troops that are down there. We need to back up our Border Patrol and stop people. There is a legal process over a million people a year, and the Democratic Party does not want to, uh, to take the law as it is. A million people a year is more than any other country. It's a process that we can then bring people in, assimilate them, know who they are. Here's the big, biggest point, Phil. There are over 80,000 children that this administration has brought in and released, and they have no clue where they are, no clue of how they're being taken care of, whether they were with a family, 80,000 children, and this is unconscionable, and it's a moral issue that the Biden administration and the Democrats ignore. Well, we have you, uh, Representative. I do want to ask you, you sit on the Financial Services Committee, so I want to ask you about another crisis in this country, and that is the fact that there is no agreement yet on what to do and how to raise the debt ceiling. You've endorsed Donald Trump for president. I want to play for people what he said at CNN's town hall this week about the debt ceiling and defaulting, followed by J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon reacting. Listen. You might as well do it now because you'll do it later because we have to save this country. Our country is dying. The U.S. defaulting would be massively consequential well, for it's, everyone it's, in this room, for all Americans. You don't know. It's psychological. It's really psychological more than anything else. And it could be very bad. It could be maybe nothing. One more thing he doesn't know very much about. Uh, it, it, let me put it in two categories. One is actual default. That is potentially catastrophic. You would agree that a default is catastrophic for our economy, right? I would completely agree. And the, the, the value system here in Washington, D.C. has always recognized that. And President Trump did. President Biden is the first modern-day president. That's not what he said respectfully, Congressman. He I, said I disagree with Donald Trump. Do you want me to say that? I disagree with Donald Trump. He knows better. But when he was president, he negotiated to make sure that it was signed and done and gave the Democrats overwhelmingly $300 billion a year more to spend. And so he did negotiate. He was successful in that. We need that same kind of statesmanship now. We really appreciate you being on. You're a key voice in uh, both of these issues. Congressman, come back. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, thank you. Yes, ma'am. So here's something to celebrate. A new survey finds U.S. employees are more satisfied 
with their jobs than ever. Is that you? We'll tell you why ahead. The city by the bay is in crisis. Once the hub of the 1960s counterculture movement, San Francisco is now struggling with homelessness, a crippling cost of living, and crime. According to the city's own controller's office, San Francisco residents feel less safe now than at any point since 1996. This week on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, our very own Sarah Seidner heads to the Bay Area, a place she once called home, to find out what happened to San Francisco. Watch. So when I first laid eyes on San Francisco, I was enchanted. From where I am right now, driving over the Bay Bridge, and it looked like someone had taken an enormous vat of fog and just continuously poured it over the hills. Like dry ice being poured over a perfectly sculpted city on a stage. And then you get down into the city and you meet these glorious human characters. And you get to experience the microclimates and the terrifyingly steep hills that make the city an adventure. Then there's the glorious bridges that sit in the bay and welcome you into the shining city on a hill. The endlessly diverse neighborhoods from Chinatown to the Mission to the Italian enclave of North Beach to the pristine Presidio, which gives the city its lungs, and down to the Pacific that rests below, inviting you in, and then biting your skin with its ice-cold touch. This city was endlessly magic, and I love this city. I mean, truly love this city, and I still do. It's just that it hurts to see what's happened to it. The crisis of homelessness in America has reached a shocking level in San Francisco. The drugs attract them, the no punishment kind of attitude, and then the resources make them want to stay. A video showing a group of kids getting off a muni bus as they try to navigate their way through an entire block of open drug use. Shoplifting in San Francisco. It's forcing stores to close. And the thieves, some of the most brazen you will see. Mobs of looters storming and ransacking high-end stores in the San Francisco area. Unprovoked attacks on elderly Asians in San Francisco. One elderly man was violently pushed to the ground and he died. Why are people feeling empowered that they can do this with impunity? Crime, staffing shortages, and police response times are all getting worse. What will it take for the city to change? Joining us now to talk more about what is going to be a fascinating report, given what we just saw, is our friend and fellow CNN anchor, Sarah Seidner. Sarah, just to see your love for the city shows that you went into this with a lot of care and compassion and actual uh, curiosity about what happened. We talked to so many people, and it wasn't just the city leaders uh, who often take the brunt of the criticism, but we talked to people who were homeless on the streets. We talked to business owners who have been dealing with this. We walked through the streets. We talked to people who were addicted to drugs and who openly said to me, I love heroin. 
and it, you know, just and said it and said, look, I came to San Francisco. I am not from here. I'm from another part of the the state, but I heard the drugs were cheaper to get and easier to get. And I love heroin. That is a quote. Wow. Um, and so the candor for which people spoke was really, um, I felt so privileged to hear from people directly, but also really disturbed to see what has happened. And no matter what you say about this city, it is still the most beautiful city that I have ever laid eyes on in the United States. It also has some of the darkest things happening in the open. These things are happening in cities all over the country. But when you see it so plainly and where you sort of can't get away from it, that is, I think, what has caused the consternation here. And I just want to make this point. When it comes to things like crime, everyone thinks of violent crime, right? You think of murders, you think of rapes, you think of, you know, the worst in humanity. And if you look at murders alone, San Francisco had 56 murders in 2021 and 2022. If you look at a city of similar size, Indianapolis, Indiana, 271 murders. Jacksonville, uh, 129 murders. So the violent crime isn't high, but the other things like break-ins, having your car broken in, happen so often. And that has what has people incredibly frustrated, as well as the open drug use. I think it's just so interesting to step away from kind of the 30,000-foot political rhetoric and actually dig in and talk to people and figure out what's actually going on. I, I'm really looking forward to watching this. Thanks, guys. Appreciate so, it. We'll see you at 9 a.m. Yes, you on will. your show. <laughs> see all of Sarah's investigation into San Francisco. Be sure to tune in to this all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. That's Sunday night, 8 o'clock Eastern, right here on CNN. Well, this morning, some good news. A new survey finds that U.S. employees are more satisfied than ever. Clearly, they were talking to Poppy. <laughs> The conference board said, because, because me, you see what I was doing there? Yeah, we were hanging I got out this it. Week I got it. I got it. Together. Conference board says it is largely thanks to a tighter labor market, which has allowed workers to command better pay, benefits, and working conditions, and a greater flexibility in work arrangements. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich joins us now. And Vanessa, I find this fascinating because people have this like kind of bad view of the economy and yeah. direction of things, and yet... Yet employees seem to be very, very Why happy. Why are people who don't get... To sit next to Phil Mattingly, happy at I mean, work. That's the age-old question. <laughs> you have to ask the millions of people who don't. <laughs> but the conference board does this survey every single year, and they reported that this year employees are the most happy out of any year that they've done this since 1987. Oh. Wow. And this is because of the tight labor market, so people can demand better wages, better benefits, and also people are loving their flexible work schedules. The people who are the most happiest are those who are working hybrid, actually more so than people who are working fully remote remote. Also, job switchers, people who have switched jobs in the last year or so, and men report being more satisfied with their jobs than women. Women are still saying that pay is not at the same rate as it is with men. They're also saying that sometimes they're not getting promoted uh, in the way that they would like, and they're not getting the bonuses that they would like. However, if you step back, this really shows us that this is very much the, the workers' job market. They still have power, and they're capitalizing on it, and they seem to be pretty satisfied. That's Love fascinating. It. It's totally fascinating. Thank you. Good story. Good Thank story. You. Vanessa, thanks so much. Title 42 is officially no more. It ended last night at midnight, and an estimated 60,000 migrants are waiting at the U.S.-Mexico border. How will the U.S. handle this? Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will join us next.
This morning, a major change in U.S. immigration rules. Title 42 is no longer. That's the pandemic-era restriction that officials said was aimed at stopping the spread of COVID. It was used nearly three million times to turn, to turn migrants away from the U.S. And now immigration officials are bracing for what comes next. The Border Patrol chief says tens of thousands of migrants are at the border, with many thousands more of them coming behind them. These are live pictures from Yuma, Arizona, where we've been watching the line at the border grow. Now, we should mention it's not even 5 a.m. there yet. Joining us now is Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, Mr. Secretary, the president met with you yesterday with Secretary Anthony Blinken, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, about the end of Title 42. As you've watched this play out over the course of the last several hours, where do things stand? Can you update us on what you've seen so far seven hours into this kind of new reality? Good morning. We, we are seeing uh, people arrive at our southern border uh, as we expected. Uh, as um, we have been planning for. We are taking them into our custody. We are processing them. We are screening and vetting them. And if they do not have a basis to remain, we will remove them very swiftly under now what we can use our traditional immigration enforcement authorities. We've been very, very clear that there are lawful, safe and orderly pathways to seek relief in the United States. And if one arrives at our southern border, one is going to face tougher consequences. And that is what we are going to deliver. You know, uh, a federal judge uh, yesterday ruled or stripped your ability to release migrants without court dates. Uh, first, do you plan to appeal that ruling? It's a very harmful ruling, and the Department of Justice is considering uh, our options. You know, the practice uh, that the uh, court has prevented us uh, from using is a practice that prior administrations have used uh, to relieve overcrowding. What we do is we process, screen, and vet individuals, and if we do not hold them, we release them so that they can go into immigration enforcement proceedings, make whatever claim for relief they might, and if they don't succeed, be removed. Um, can I ask you, given that, whether it's temporary or how long it lasts, given the court order, what are you doing to prepare for uh, overcrowding issue? I mean, are you prepared to deal with the fact that you're going to have to continue to hold more people because of what the court has done do you have the facilities, the resources necessary to deal with what could be a new influx of people that you need to hold? So uh, a couple things. Number one, we've been planning for months and we've been executing on those plans. We have surged personnel. We have um, added uh, facility capacity. We have surged transportation resources. We, we will manage through the situation. But really what the situation reflects is the fact that we are operating within very serious constraints. And the two primary constraints are as follows. One, a fundamentally broken immigration system that hasn't been fixed for more than two decades, and we need Congress to act. Two, we need Congress to provide us with the resources that we need, that we requested, and that we haven't received. Can you explain? I think one of the things that, that people have a difficult time getting their heads around is you saying, which is true, you guys have been preparing for this for months. It has been an inevitability. The administration has known it was coming, uh, and yet it, the president noted that it would likely be chaotic is not really a good read on whether or not the preparation is going to be enough, especially in the short term. How is that possible if you had so much time to prepare 
and yet still aren't totally sure that you'll be able to uh, basically not have some type of chaotic situation at the border? I've, I've been very clear for months that uh, the situation is going to be challenging. Uh, when we transition from the um, public health authority of Title 42 to our immigration enforcement authorities. I've been very, very clear and open about that. I've also been very clear that we have confidence in our plan, that our plan will take some time, but our plan will succeed. And I say that with confidence because our plan has worked in the past. The president extended lawful, safe and orderly pathways for individuals from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua and Venezuela on January 5th. And for those individuals from those countries who didn't use those pathways, we delivered a tougher consequence. We saw a more than 90 percent drop in the number of encounters of those individuals um, in, a, in a matter of days. And so we've seen success. We will achieve success. It will take time. And to avoid, to avoid the number of people arriving at our southern border, we need to fix the broken immigration system. And by the way, a broken immigration system that was dismantled by the prior administration. No, and I understand. I know it's been a difficult two plus years trying to put together the plans that you wanted to, to implement when it comes to that system. I, I do want to ask one of the biggest issues when you talk to officials on the ground, whether federal or state and local, is the disinformation, the information that you guys are trying to get out. I mean, you put out a statement last night. You've been very clear that the border is not open. You know, one of our colleagues on the ground said it appears the Department of Homeland Security is making a very clear effort to, to kind of showcase the law enforcement efforts. Federal agents and black jackets and handcuffs were walking around in Sacred Heart Church in El Paso asking migrants to turn themselves in. ICE was giving access to reporters for removal flights, something that I think the Obama administration did as well. Um, is it intentional? Are you trying to, to make very clear from a kind of more muscular law enforcement perspective through pictures that this is not what maybe people are hearing uh, from the other side of the border? We have an obligation to counter the ruthless actions of the smuggling organizations. Not only do they inflict tragedy and trauma on the migrants, on vulnerable individuals, but they spread misinformation, they spread lies to deceive those vulnerable individuals into placing their lives and life savings in the hands of criminals that only care about profit and not people. So we have been communicating for months accurate information, and we've been building on those communications and only amplifying and enhancing our efforts. Just a couple days ago, we announced a new digital campaign. We've got to send uh, accurate information to the migrants so they're not dece deceived and lied to and possibly lose their lives at the hands of really ruthless criminal organizations. Yeah. Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, very complex and dynamic situation. Thanks for taking the time for us this morning, sir. Really important conversation. Thank you. Good morning. Really important conversation on what is happening right now at the southern border and what can actually be done about it. Meantime, ahead for us, Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop may have been spared from execution for now. There are questions about his original trial, questions about his conviction. So what does justice actually look like? We'll be joined by a legendary human rights attorney next to talk about it. And several top Republicans responding to former President Trump's performance at CNN's town hall. What they said coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Richard Glossop's life has been spared, at least for now. The Supreme Court stayed the execution of the Oklahoma death row inmate, and the court is now considering a petition for review. Glossop has been on death row for a quarter century. He has had nine execution dates put on the calendar after he was convicted of hiring someone to murder his former boss. But the Republican attorney general and several pro-death penalty Republicans in the state say he didn't get a fair trial. And an independent review is also raising doubts about his guilt. This situation is not that unique, according to the legendary death penalty defense attorney, Stephen Bright. He is a co-author of a brand new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. And you may remember him as a CNN champion of change last year. Listening to him talk is like listening to justice. He's a force of nature, and he has dedicated his entire life, really, to fighting for equal justice. If we don't do better, we're going to have to sandblast equal justice under law off the Supreme Court building. He has argued four capital punishment cases before the Supreme Court, and he has won all of them. In the, rights of, in the words of human rights champion Brian Stevenson, we are truly fortunate to have these writings and the extraordinary Steve Bright to guide us in our understanding of what justice requires. He is generously preparing us for the work that remains, and the rest is up to us. It is my honor to welcome Yale Law School and Georgetown Law Professor Stephen Bright, my former teacher, to the program. Hi, Poppy. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here very much. So you named this book The Fear of Too Much Justice, of course, in the words of the former justice, William Brennan. Why? Well, because what the court did in that case, it was a case involving racial disparities in the death penalty in Georgia. And Justice Powell wrote the majority opinion, and he said if we look into racial disparities with regard to the death penalty, uh, we'd have to look into racial disparities in all other kinds of sentencing because we have the same disparities. And Justice Brennan said that sounds like a fear of too much justice. And I think we see that over and over again, where the courts are just unwilling to do. Uh, we ought to be concerned with racial disparities in all kinds of sentencing, not just in capital sentencing. But it's been invoked over and over again. In another case, uh, Justice Powell said uh, we shouldn't ask jurors whether they have uh, opinions, uh, racial prejudice opinions, uh, because then we'd have to ask about a lot of other things as well. Uh, 1931, Chief Justice Hughes said, well, of course you want to ask those questions because we don't want to take the risk that somebody with that kind of prejudice would be on a jury. One of the things that I think is so extraordinary about your career and what you've done and why I think everyone needs to read this book is that you made a choice as a very young lawyer. You could have gone on and made a lot of money at a big law firm and you chose not to. Instead, you chose to exclusively represent indigent people. You represent, in your words, the most desperate, the most despised, the poorest, the most powerless people in the country. And, and some of them are criminals. Some of them have convicted murder. Some people question why they should deserve your representation. Why has your whole life been dedicated to this? Well, everyone deserves representation. The legal system can't work uh, without lawyers to represent people. And if we're going to have an adversary system, you have to have a lawyer to assess the strength of the government's case, to uh, prepare and investigate the defense case, and then to present that case. And of course, the system can't work. Unfortunately, as we point out, uh, there are lots of places in the system where the people who are uh, have so much at stake, even their life at stake, don't have uh, lawyers to represent them or don't have competent lawyers. There's something going on. We just talked about the case of Richard Glossop right now, and, and we've been covering that very closely here and on this network. You argue that situations like this where someone has almost faced execution nine times, and it turns out 
very likely didn't get a fair trial, according to pro-death penalty Republicans in his state. Oh, no you say question. that's not unique. No, that's not unique. And uh, Richard Gossip is extraordinarily fortunate uh, that the Republican attorney general in that state, the highest law enforcement officer in Oklahoma, went to the Supreme Court and said, yes, he should get a stay of execution uh, because we cannot defend this conviction. We cannot defend this conviction. And he asked a very prominent prosecutor there to look at the case and investigate it and report back. He said the same thing. We can't we cannot. Uh... You write in your book to this point, the conviction of innocent people, although the most striking failure of the criminal legal system is only the tip of the iceberg. Is that why you say we are not living up to the four words above the Supreme Court equal justice under law? Right. Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, the Supreme Court once said there can be no equal justice when the kind of justice a person gets depends upon the amount of money he or she has. Nothing is more important than the amount of money a person has. What do you think about what we're seeing in the state of Florida right now? Governor Ron DeSantis, who's very likely going to run for president of the United States, has passed um, several death penalty bills that have changed the system. One of them was passed after the death penalty was not invoked for the Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz, who, you know, murdered 17 people. So no longer do you need a unanimous vote for a jury to recommend the death penalty. Here's why. Here's the father, Frank Guttenberg, of a 14-year-old murdered at the school. Let's listen. There are 17 victims that did not receive justice today. And this decision today only makes it more likely that the next mass shooting will be attempted. What do you think about what he said and also what Governor DeSantis has done with the death penalty in that state? Well, I certainly understand the disappointment. There's no question about that. But at the same time, we can't every time a case doesn't come out the way we want it pass a law to try to change the outcome. What the Florida legislature passed at Governor DeSantis' uh, insistence uh, was a law that says a jury with a vote of eight to four uh, can impose the death penalty. Uh, no other state uh, has that. In fact, in every other state, the jury has to be unanimous, except Alabama, where it has to be at least 10 Isn't jurors. Isn't it in opposition to a Supreme Court precedent? Well, yes, and the Supreme Court has at least said at the guilt phase that we have to have unanimous juries. And there are two reasons for that. One, the jury system, when you have a unanimous jury, it means that every person has the same amount of power. Every person has to be heard. Uh, when you have uh, non-unanimous juries, when you say you can disregard uh, four jurors, uh, very often that's the four people of color that are on the jury or the two, three, ever how many people of color are on the jury. Stephen Bright, thank you very much. Professor Bright, I still have a hard time calling you, Steve. Congratulations. Thank on the you book. again for having me. Appreciate it's great it very, to be very here, much. Great to see you. All right, the new book, again, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts will be released in June. CNN This Morning continues right now. And so we've seen success. We will achieve success. It will take time. And to avoid, to avoid the number of people arriving at our southern border, we need to fix the broken immigration system. And by the way, a broken immigration system that was dismantled by the prior administration. It is the top of the hour on a very significant Friday with a lot of news, particularly on immigration in this country. That was Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas just moments ago right here talking to Phil on CNN this morning. We're live on both sides of the southern border as Title 42 expired overnight. The United States bracing for tens of thousands of migrants who have been waiting to cross 
Plus, at any moment here in New York City, we're expecting Marine veteran to turn himself in after a deadly chokehold on the subway sparked outrage across the nation. Today's debt limit meeting between President Biden and congressional leaders called off. What does it mean for negotiations as our nation inches closer to a catastrophic default? This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. This morning, the crisis at the southern border is escalating. After Title 42 expired at midnight, take a look. These are live pictures out of Yuma, Arizona. Tens of thousands of migrants have been waiting near the border for this very moment as the clock ran out on the immigration rule. Overnight, a judge blocked the Biden administration from quickly releasing migrants without giving them a court date. And U.S. officials are raising the alarm that it will lead to dangerous overcrowding of border facilities. We are live on both sides of the southern border at the same border gate, Rosa Flores, you'll see there in El Paso. And our David Culver is on the other side of that wall in Juarez, Mexico. David, let's begin with you. What are you seeing? Poppy, what we are seeing right now is what we saw right when Title 42 officially lifted at midnight Eastern time, 9.59 p.m. here in Ciudad Juarez. And that is a rather quiet scene right now. And it's interesting because you can see what are just now a few dozen people left. And we've been showing you this over the past few days. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, camped out here for hours, days, and weeks leading up to the expiration of Title 42. But their focus on getting to that point, and that technically is U.S. soil, by the way, was not the deadline for Title 42. We've been talking about this, too. They're on their own schedules in trying to get to the U.S. Everyone you speak with has a different plan of action and a different focus. And so it's not a monolith amongst all the migrants that you see. They're all focused on different aspects of when they want to get into the U.S., how they're going to get to the U.S. But one thing that has been significant is the show of force. Now, what you see behind me are those barbed wire fences, which have been increasing and really kind of coming in closer and closer. They've been making this box here, if you will, smaller, and they've been preventing, as of the past 24 hours, any migrants from crossing over the Rio Grande here to go from Mexico into Texas. Now, that is mostly Texas National Guard and Texas State Troopers. If you go back to November and December, sure, we saw this show of force starting to come on, but now it's certainly more intense. And you're also now starting to see more cooperation between CBP, federal officials in the U.S., and Texas law enforcement in trying to process the groups of migrants. I would say about 24 hours ago, when you had about 1,000 plus people here, you had mostly families. What we then saw 12 hours or so ago was the dividing of different groups. You had families on one side, you had unaccompanied minors put into a group, and then you had single men. And it seems they're down to just the single men that they're continuing to process at this hour. And you heard Secretary Mayorkas a short time ago right here on CNN this morning describing the desire to screen, process, and vet. And if you look over here, right up gate 42, as the sun's coming up right behind it, you see a line of migrants that are going through that process right now. The biggest question is, all right, Title 42 is over. What next? As I pointed out, case by case, depending on the migrant you speak with. We've been on the trains, the freight trains that migrants travel in on from southern Mexico. They make very, very long journeys. Some of them take several months to get here. They tell us they're going to continue to not only try to get into the U.S., but they're going to try to get their family members in. There's a determination, certainly a desperation, but also if they can't do it legally, as many of them hope to, we see even at, at this hour, a lot of them 
in the city center here in Ciudad Juarez on their phones trying to go through the CBP-1 app, trying to get an appointment with asylum officers. If they can't get that appointment, they say they'll figure out other ways to get across. Ultimately, though, if it's not legally, they're going to try to go undetected. So that shows you just where their mindset is at, not based on U.S. policy, Poppy, which we've seen go back and forth so many times. And yes, while Title 42 is now officially lifted, they really are looking at what's next for them on an individual basis. And that's got to be stressed here. Yeah, it's the root causes that are probably more <clears throat> important than anything else at this point. They've been doing great coverage. Stay with us for a minute. We're going to go across the border from Juarez, Mexico, to El Paso, Texas, where we find CNN's Rosa Flores. Uh, Rosa, what have you seen over the course of this morning? You know, I'm just across the river from David Culver, and we are seeing exactly that same thing. What he's mentioning uh, are the individuals who are just behind the border wall uh, that you see behind me. And according to the Border Patrol chief, uh, within 48 hours, there was about 2,500 migrants. And yesterday afternoon, he was here. He spoke to the media about how about 1,500 of those had been processed and that about 1,000 were remaining. And if you remember those that video that David Culver was just showing us moments ago, uh, that's exactly what the Border Patrol chief had explained, that in the next 24 hours that they were planning on processing all of those individuals as quickly as they could and that they were going to prioritize families to make sure that those individuals were uh, processed first, vetted first. I can tell you it gets very cold here overnight. That was one of the reasons why they wanted to prioritize families and vulnerable individuals. Now, Secretary Mallorca is just telling uh, our own Phil Mattingly that individuals are arriving, migrants are arriving, they're being vetted under Title VIII, that's the decades-old protocol, and that the Biden administration has been preparing for this moment for a very long time and that they are focusing on uh, uh, implementing policies that have legal consequences and, and, and built-in legal consequences, but also that they have legal pathways for migrants to come into the United States. Now, one of the uh, 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 policies that has been most criticized is the ban on asylum for individuals who cross other countries and don't seek prote protections in those countries. And uh, Poppy and Phil, I, I, sh I should mention the ACLU overnight filed a lawsuit uh, challenging the Biden administration, saying that that's very dangerous for migrants uh, because a lot of them would be likely deported or removed immediately under Title VIII. David and Rosa at the border, thanks so much. And just moments ago, a Marine veteran turned himself in to New York City police in the killing of a homeless man in the subway in New York. Manhattan District Attorney's Office says they will charge 24-year-old Daniel Penny with manslaughter. Now, it's been it's been almost two weeks since this happened. We know it has happened. His attorneys, Daniel Penny's attorneys, are speaking right now. Let's listen in. We're going to give now. We'll wait for the case to get to court. And uh, I have a feeling I'll see you all at the courthouse. Thank you. Thank you. And we have Omar Jimenez there that we want to take you to right now. And Omar, uh, obviously, we've been waiting for this. We knew it was coming. What have you heard up to this point? What were the lawyers saying there? Uh, I yeah, so that was a uh, lawyer for Daniel Penny, Thomas Kniff, and he was basically laying out what we had just saw unfold a few moments ago, that Daniel Penny, his client, turned himself in shortly after 8 a.m. Eastern time. Penny, of course, is the man uh, who put uh, Jordan Neely uh, in the subway in a chokehold 
killing him. And of course, he's uh, expected to be charged with second degree manslaughter. Now, as his attorney laid out, uh, Penny is inside uh, the police precinct right now where he turned himself in. Later today, he's expected to be in court where they do expect an arraignment as well. Previously, Kniff has described their, their outlook on the case as Penny was someone who is not only defending himself, but people in this train car as well. But of course, on the other side of things, you've had protests across the city who have said, no, this was a clear example of murder because of what people have at least seen unfold on cell phone video. So, of course, those were the arguments back and forth. The district attorney's office, the official charges that would that are going to come down are we expected to be second degree manslaughter as well. One, so one of the things he just said a few moments ago, Thomas Kniff, was that he, and this may give us a glimpse into some of the defense, was that he described himself turning, or he described Penny turning himself in as doing so honorably and in a way that is characteristic of service to this country. Of course, Penny, a, Mar a U.S. Marine veteran, so that may give us some clues into how they intend to defend uh, his actions in this particular case. But again, it is one that has ignited a firestorm of not just protests here in New York, but also discussions about homelessness, mental health, basically all of the factors that ended up, as we understand, putting Jordan Neely in this situation in the first place. And then, of course, the facts that we have heard from witnesses in this, that he was acting erratically prior, asking for food, saying he was hungry, saying he was thirsty, saying he wasn't afraid to go to, to jail to serve a life sentence. And then from there, it's in those moments that are going to be the crux of this case. What happened when he started acting erratically, as witnesses have described, between those words and when this chokehold began? And that, of course, is going to make a major difference here, as many have asked and declared, should this case have resulted in death. That's right. Omar Jimenez for us on the scene. Thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in uh, CNN anchor and correspondent Adi Cornish, as well as CNN political commentator uh, in New York Magazine, columnist Errol Lewis, who knows everything about New York City. And I want you both to weigh in on this. Errol, let me just begin with you. Um, it's uh, s startling and it's sad. And it's a case that I think is really starting to sort of bring the city together to have a conversation about some really important problems around mental health, around drug addiction, around how the city responds. You know, at least half a dozen city agencies touched Jordan Neely's life over the last couple of years. And that includes uh, the jails and that includes the cops and that includes cases where he was in city custody. And we still, as a city, were not able to help this person. And so, you know, those are so, sort of the most important questions, in my opinion, long term. What happens to Daniel Penny? Unfortunately, his defense is largely going to turn on uh, making this seem as if the subways are scary, that people who are uh, sick and in need are, are, are also a threat that have to be met with physical force, and in this case, deadly physical force. Uh, a lot of us don't believe that that is true, but that's going to be the conversation that we're going to have. Audie, can I ask you, it's, I've heard Earl say this before, and it's jarring. How many agencies, how many federal or state government institutions had a role in a life and totally failed? Totally failed. I'm not putting blame on anybody, but for this to reach this point, yeah. uh, for so many people in this city and so many cities, what does that tell you about kind of the state of things uh, in the country? That's a really big question. I'll, I'll draw a circle around it this way. A few years ago, this death might have gone unnoticed. And we are now in the kind of post-George Floyd era where there is video and there is outcry and there is not the assumption that the victim 
is guilty, that the victim is the person who is big, scary, bad, and needed to be taken down. Um, the flip side is part of the backlash to that dialogue is that it might be okay in some cases for people to believe they can take it upon themselves to take down a threat or anything they perceive to be a threat. And that has accompanied a lot of legislation, kind of stand your ground type things that say, I can step in as a regular person and do something. And as a culture, we are now going to have a dialogue about where do those things meet? What is justice if those two ideas clash? You nailed it. And I think that's such an important and hard and gritty conversation to have that we need to be having more of. Yeah, Omer drew a line under it when yeah. he mentioned that the attorneys are already saying this is an honorable person. This is a person who yes. turned this. We're going to hear a lot about his military experience, and I'm sure we're going to hear about whether that experience should be deployed in a civilian setting right. uh, under ideas of perceived threat, especially in a transracial um, death. Yeah. So and, this, I mean, hopefully we don't lose the idea that if somebody's on the train, even if you're afraid of him, screaming that he's hungry, Maybe instead of a chokehold, you give him a sandwich, you know, or you give him a mint or, you know, a candy bar. But that's also a very New Yorker perception, right? You're just kind of like, hey, it's the subway. I think there's a lot of media coverage that says crime is out of control. New York is the avatar for that. And if you want to have a dialogue about that, then you're somehow not admitting how bad it is. A lot of things are going to play out in this conversation. Let's... uh Thank you guys for that very much. And I do want to get your take, obviously, on immigration. Phil just did a really interesting interview with Secretary of Mayor. Yes. Secretary of Mayor, because today's the day. Title 42 is gone, and now we wait and we see what happens. What's interesting, Errol, to me, too, is that in the context of it, it's not just Republicans hitting the administration. It's some Democrats. It's independents, like Kirsten Cinema, saying, you said you've been dealing with this, preparing for more than a year, but you're not ready. Fair? Yeah. Well, well, yes and no, right? <laughs> In the immediate sense, could they have uh, pr- prepared better? I suppose you could go, you know, sort of logistically, you could say, well, yeah, maybe you should have had more people. Maybe you should have put out more warnings, more messaging uh, to stop people from being, you know, uh, so, sort of uh, uh, fooled by these lies that the traffickers are putting out there. On the other hand, every person, including and especially the members of Congress, have also been sitting on their hands. This has been brewing for a generation now, and we still don't have a comprehensive policy that in a logical and consistent and sort of morally grounded way separates those who need help and those who are eligible to apply for asylum from those who are economic refugees. You know, And it's going to cost a lot of money, and that's why you have to do it through Congress. It's not something right. you can just but kind of one by one. it's a one. question where you earn points for not solving it. And by that, I mean it's, it's a great thing to hit your opponent with, but if you actually have to sit and make solutions, well, then you're going to take the political hit, right? The late John McCain found that out several times. We've heard about bipartisan immigration reform several times. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, I'm not saying that won't happen here, but uh, President Biden actually carried Title 42 along from the Trump administration, right? There are lots of policies from the Trump era that he held on to. That's what Democrats are upset about. And if we skyhook Kirsten Sinema out of that sentence, because she's not aligned with Democrats right now and is trying to appeal to a Republican base in her state that is deeply upset with how border security is handled, not the humanitarian crisis, um, then you have a whole other dialogue about, yes, you can secure the border, but will that ever deal with what you pointed out, 
root causes. Right. And those things are tied into the debt ceiling debate, budget debates, because if you don't have money for immigration judges, if you don't put in money, U.S. aid, which many conservatives say we should not be doing on one level or another, those root causes will never be dealt with. The incentives are so catastrophically misaligned between the politics and the policy on this. And I'm not saying that this is an easy fix if there weren't politics involved. This is very But that's their job. But it is just, it's like decades of this. You say, I don't know if this is going to happen this time around. I'll go ahead and tell you, nothing is going to happen on this time around. And it's it's sad and it's terrible. we have to let you go. Uh, Audie knows this. I'm like a massive super fan of her podcast. Big and podcast I embarrass her every single time that I we're love on it. television together. Uh, you need to be sure to check out the assignment wherever you get your podcast. I'm actually super excited for this week for exactly the reason I always talk yeah. to you about, which is like, this is a thing that I kind of look at or see in the periphery and it's a very hot political talk about issue. the woke person. and anti-woke yes. backlash and trust me, all those things touch on the things and we you talked go about there. today. Yeah. yeah. It's a great Here's episode. It. And you get smarter every single time. Oh, I, know I love cliche. it. Where, so what true. I need to it give like you money. Embarrassing. <laughs> just going to slip it in the newspaper and <laughs> <laughs> just pretend to read it. I need to chill. Be cool, Phil. Be cool. <laughs> all right. Coming up ahead, the race to find a way to harness the power of nuclear fusion for clean energy. We give you an inside look at those efforts. And penne a la panic. What's behind Italy's alarming <laughs> spike in pasta prices? Good writing, That's good. That's good writing. That was on my script. In the- I love- More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Scientists around the world are racing to find a way to power electric grids through nuclear fusion. It's a game-changing energy source that would help slash global emissions. Just months ago, one lab in California had a major breakthrough, a breakthrough that could lead scientists to harnessing the same clean energy that powers the sun. CNN's Bill Weir got a behind-the-scenes look at the lab with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granel. Inside this building, some very smart people built a star on Earth. Not the Hollywood kind, that's easy. No, the burning ball of gas in the sky kind. One of the hardest things humans have ever tried. I was at the airport when my boss called me and I burst into tears. (laughs) Tammy Ma is among the scientists who have been chasing nuclear fusion for generations. Countdown for a shot on my mark. Three, two, one, mark. And in the middle of a December night, they did it. And you only need a tiny little bit of fuel. That's right, yeah. Because our little pellet that sits right in the middle, you can't even see it on this target, is just two millimeters in diameter. That target includes an abundant isotope found in seawater and goes into a chamber about the size of a beach ball in the 60s, but is now a round room 30 feet across with 192 massive lasers aimed at the center. They're big laser beams about 40 by 40 centimeters. Each one alone is one of the most energetic in the world. Every time we do a shot, it's a thousand times the power of the entire U.S. electrical grid. But (laughs) your lights don't flicker at home when we take a shot. So what we're doing is taking a huge amount of energy and compressing it down just into nanoseconds. All right. So it's about $14 of electricity. The National Ignition Facility then amplifies all that concentrated energy on the target. And if they get it just right, more energy comes out then went in with no risk of nuclear meltdown or radioactive waste. In a fusion power plant, you would shoot the same target over and over at about 10 times a second, 
dropping a target in and shooting it with lasers. So you'd need a target loader, like a we machine gun. We need a target loader, right? exactly. So there's still many, many technology jumps that we need to make, but that's what makes it so exciting, right? A lot of people were saying you've invested all this money, time to pull the plug because you guys haven't achieved ignition. Right. I mean, it's called the National Ignition Facility, right? <laughs> at, and, some um, at some point, you better at some point you better ignite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to replicate the process that's happening on the sun on Earth. It's just really hard, and so when that happened in December, what it said is that this is actually possible. So it's no longer a question of whether, it's just a question of when, that fusion is actually possible. Now, let's get to work. Well, conventional wisdom and the International Energy Agency tells us it'll be decades before anybody's really plugging anything into fusion electricity. There was a startup called Helion, which says they have a reactor that can fire plasma rings at a million miles an hour and will demonstrate electricity by next year. And in fact, in a first-of-a-kind power purchase agreement, Microsoft has already bought fusion electricity from Helion for the year 2028. The future is coming fast. Bill Weir, CNN in Northern California. Brilliant. Another brilliant Bill Weir piece. That was fascinating, Bill. Thank you very much. Meantime, the Justice Department says a 29-year-old pilot, get this, who intentionally crashed his plane for YouTube views will plead guilty to a federal charge. The flight took place in November of 2021. Here, take a look. You can see Trevor Jacob flying his plane, notably wearing a parachute the whole time. After about 35 minutes flying over a national forest in California, he ejected himself all while videoing himself parachuting to the ground. You can see the plane crashing to the ground, largely thanks to multiple cameras attached to it. They caught the video. I cut my finger pretty bad, got my elbow. I'm just so happy to be alive. I don't even know, man. Thank you. God, thank you, universe. I'm in pain, man. I'm hurting. Whatever I'm going through, I wish upon nobody. The Justice Department says Jacob lied to federal authorities about the whereabouts of the wreckage, which prosecutors say he later destroyed. His pilot's license has been revoked, and he's facing up to 20 years in prison. There's just moments where you think to yourself, we're living in the dumbest time. But I'm an optimist, so I don't actually believe it. But you have, the, like, the twinges. But I like, love that you just said what... Everyone thinks. Oh, we're not supposed then, to do that? No. no you said it no. out loud. That's okay. Now to this. It's Friday. Uh, in much more serious news, Italy's government convened crisis talks on Thursday. The pressing to topic? It was pasta. It was pasta. <laughs> the issue isn't if it tastes better with extra parm or if penne is better than rigatoni, but a surge in prices. Now, pasta prices were 17.5% higher in March compared to the same time last year. A commission of lawmakers, pasta producers, and consumer rights groups met in Rome to discuss what could be done. Pasta prices have gone up despite the price of wheat falling in recent months. A spokesperson for Italy's Minister of Enterprise ensures everyone that the price increase is temporary, with production costs lowering. An Italian consumer rights group estimated that the average Italian consumes about 51 pounds of pasta each year, which frankly is a challenge that I'm willing to accept and win. Why do they look so good then? I mean, I feel, I feel like, like we're generalizing you, massively I know, the entire but population you, of people. But. I know, but I feel like when you go to Rome, as one does, and eat as pasta. <laughs> yeah, sorry. When I yeah, summer right. in Europe, yeah, that's being Phil, cities, you guys so fancy. Yeah, that's But me. it doesn't count, and you don't get fat. And can you imagine what happened if 
I don't want to imagine what would happen if I, I would ate like 51, 51 pounds, pounds of pasta, pasta a year. I had this. <laughs> uh, moving on. Mother's Day is Sunday. Don't forget, babe. There you go. Hopefully, you already got your mom or wife their gift. But if you haven't, we'll tell you what the most popular gifts are. Be better than that. Sleep. All Sleep. I want. Yeah, that's All what. All I want. A phone Sleep. call. Sleep. Just minutes ago, a Marine veteran turned himself in to New York City police in the killing of a homeless man on the subway. Manhattan District Attorney's Office says they will charge 24-year-old Daniel Penny with manslaughter. Penny's lawyer just spoke outside the police precinct. Morning, Daniel Penny surrendered uh, at the 5th Precinct at the request of the New York County District Attorney's Office. Sit down, sit down, sit down. He did so voluntarily and with the sort of dignity and integrity that is characteristic of his history of service to this grateful nation. The case will now go to court. Uh, we expect an arraignment will occur this afternoon and the process will unfold from there. Let's bring in former Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Jeremy Saland. And I, I want to start with kind of the basics here, because everybody who's seen the video knows kind of the, the conversation around this, has been waiting for something to happen. What exactly does manslaughter in the second degree mean? And what do you think of that charge in this case? Absolutely. For, for a preliminary matter, homicide is not necessarily a murder, although it can be. And a murder is an intentional crime. This is a reckless crime. There is a standard of care, and he was aware of, and the allegations will be, that there was an unjustifiable and a real risk that death could occur based on his actions. And he ignored that risk or was reckless with that, and ultimately it resulted in Mr. Neely's death. The DA Alvin had options here, could have done this now, could have done this arrest the day of or the day after, or could have brought it before um, a grand jury and let that grand jury decide. What do you make of this move? Well, I think they did the right thing out of the gate. You have to have your homework done or your ducks in a row and make sure all the evidence is there. You don't want to just charge someone with a crime that might not be the correct crime. They did their investigation. They spoke to the witnesses. They got video. Uh, you know, it could very well be. It's interesting because if the evidence is there to charge him with his manslaughter in the second degree, arguably they should just go right to the grand jury and present that case to the grand jury. Let the grand jury decide, let them vote. And if it's manslaughter in the second degree, proceed. This is a felony complaint. It's very different. It hasn't reached that stage. Maybe they're looking at other charges. Maybe they're gathering some other evidence. But they have enough at least now to charge him. But that's a reasonable question. Why not go right to the grand jury? This has been a complex case, I think, for the city, I think, for the entire country, trying to figure it out. I think to some people it's very obvious what happened and that it shouldn't happen and for any number of different reasons. Other people are trying to uh, think through it in different ways. As you think through a, a grand jury, as you think through perhaps a future jury, what are you thinking of if you're a, a prosecutor trying to bring this case? Well, there's a very emotional, strong component because it's such a tragic event. And one tragedy doesn't say another tragedy should be okay. And what I mean by that is there's someone who died without reason, without cause. He should not have died. Um, and there's arguments to be made, and we've only seen that one clip of the video, that it should never have reached that point. But at the same time, prosecutors really have to make sure that there's a just result and ensure that Whatever the charges is the right one. We don't charge someone with a crime above and beyond because there's a very genuine emotional piece to it. There is a crime. It's maybe manslaughter in the second degree. It's a C felony as opposed to the murder, which is vastly different and more serious. So I think they really have to make sure that this is really done right and well and thorough 
because you're controlling the public opinion and emotion, but you're also doing what is right for the case, even if in the end it's a tragic no matter what. Errol Lewis brought up the point that this is going to rely largely on the testimony of all of the people who are on that subway car. And it's intermingled with the fact and the narrative about crime in this city, despite some of the facts and fear and all of that. It's it's complicated. It's very complicated. And I would hope that and I'm confident the DA's offices and I hope that potential jurors would set aside any noise about what Mr. Penny's history is or what more importantly what Mr. Neely's history is in terms of his criminal history. That's not relevant. What's only relevant is what happened in that subway car or maybe leading into that subway car. Were people in imminent danger of serious physical injury or death that allowed or justified Mr. Penny to take the action that he did? And I, I won't pass judgment because I have not seen all the evidence, nor has anyone else. We haven't heard from the witnesses. So we have a lot to discover still. And awfully difficult, to, though, to do that in a vacuum, right? Absolutely. To try, and, try and just centralize that. Uh, there's going to be a lot more on this. Jeremy Salant, thanks so much for walking us through it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy. Even before Title 42 expired, the city of El Paso had hundreds of migrants living on the streets. A mayor joins us live as his city prepares now for a post-Title 42 reality. It has been nearly nine hours since the pandemic-era border policy known as Title 42 expired. Hundreds of migrants at the southern border are hoping for a shot at asylum in the United States, though administration officials have tried to make it clear the border is not open. Tens of thousands of migrants are already in custody as cities along the border, like El Paso, Texas, have braced for this moment. So let me bring in the Democratic mayor of El Paso, Oscar Leeser. Mayor, thank you very much. You literally are. I mean, your city is the epicenter of this crisis. Can you tell us what has happened since Title 42 expired? Well, we've been preparing it. And, you know, it's something important that we talked about what we had done prior to. And uh, we've been working for, for this probably for the last month. We declared a state of emergency back on May 1st to be able to open temporary sheltering. We had a school that uh, had been closed down and We've uh, been able to open that and prepared. We have a second school that's prepared and ready to go. And then our civic center. And we uh, we actually have a great working relationship with the federal government, with uh, CBP, Customs, ICE, and the county and the city. So we were able to work and be prepared for, for yesterday. And uh, I'm really, really pleased of the way everyone came together and we're able to do what but, uh, as you, we, we didn't get the huge rush yesterday because we'd been leading up to it. Yeah, but today's a different story because Title 42 has expired. I mean, we've even seen mayors in, in quote unquote sanctuary cities like New York City, Mayor Adams saying we're, we are at capacity. We cannot um, shelter any more migrants. Do you know if you're going to be able to handle this? No, no, we, they're not coming to El Paso. And I think that's something that's really important to, to talk about. They're coming to the United States. And once they get processed, they're going to be processed, then they're free to go just like anyone else. And where the destination they pick, that's where they'll be going. A lot of them have their own funding and some will be, you know, will assist with because, again, they're not coming to El Paso. They're not uh, they're coming to the United States. And if you look at the numbers back in 2020 in El Paso, we had 64,000 asylum seekers. Year to date today, we have 281,000 have come across. So the, a community like El Paso, any community along the, the southern border couldn't take on this type by themselves. So it's really important to know that uh, we will continue to decompress and help them go to their next destination. Uh, Phil interviewed uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas last hour. Uh, here's part of what he said. I'd like your reaction on the other side. 
we've been planning for months and we've been executing on those plans. I've, I've been very clear for months that uh, the situation is going to be challenging uh, when we transition from the um, public health authority of Title 42 to our immigration enforcement authorities. I've been very, very clear and open about that. I've also been very clear that we have confidence in our plan, that our plan will take some time, but our plan will succeed. What would be success for you? Because there are Democrats, as you know, and independents in Congress who have said this administration has not done enough knowing that this day would come. Well, I, I can tell you they've worked really close together with our community and Secretary Mallorca, FEMA and all has really given us the funding and the ability to do what we need to do right now to really do the job of the federal government. But it's so important to realize the immigration process is broken and needs to be fixed. And, you know, I think at this point they need to learn that they need to disagree, but also work for mutual agreement and be able to fix the immigration problem. There has to be an end game. A city like El Paso and cities all across the country cannot continue to go in this manner. So right. even though that uh, they've helped us, they've worked with us, we have to fix that immigration problem because the, the end game in infinity is really something we can't continue forever. Cannot continue. Before you go, Mayor, I'd like to show our viewers this, and I'm, I'm hopefully you can see it, but I'm going to play you video now of this piece that our colleague Rosa Flores did and aired on CNN yesterday. These are uh, enforcement officials handing out flyers to hundreds of migrants right outside a church in your city, in El Paso, asking them to turn themselves in. They, this is unique to see something like this happening in the middle of the night, Rosa tells us. And then later there were vehicles, uh, their, their own marked vehicles coming by, again, encouraging them to go. And it turned out, Rosa reported that 900 migrants did turn themselves in with lines that were around the block. It just, I think, reminds us of the, the humans, the humanitarian crisis that I think gets lost in a lot of these headlines. You know, I think it's very important to talk about that because we had about 3,000 people on the street and our goal was to make sure that no one was on the street, the children, women, young kids were not exploited and weren't taken care of. So we really worked together with Customs and Border Patrol and the El Paso Police Department that doesn't enforce immigration laws, but that they're helping and enforce. And literally, that number went from 3,000 to a couple hundred and within a couple days, and that was to help them. But, you know, our responsibility as leaders here in El Paso is to make sure the El Paso community and our visitors continue to be safe. And that was a perfect example that uh, I went down yesterday. I've been there almost every day, and we've seen the numbers go down because they realized that somebody really that this won the trick, that we're working together for uh, – to give them a pathway to become legal and go through the legal immigration process. So you were just to put a button on it, comfortable with that, because that is a kind of response we usually wouldn't see in an area like that around a church, for example. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the Border Patrol will not go into the church area. Right. They, that's, they feel that that's their safe haven. But we were able to go in there and talk to them and show them the advantages of how doing this would help them and be able to get that A number that will give them the ability to move forward. And, and that really did help, and we'll continue to do that. And we go in there twice a day, clean the streets to make sure our visitors and also our community does not uh, you know, don't get infected, don't get sick. So we've really been very, very proactive, and we'll continue to do that. And I think it shows by the numbers last night and everything we've done. And, you know, the, the thing is we still need to continue 
to prepare for the unknown because we don't know what's coming in tomorrow. We don't know what will be coming in a week from now. So we'll continue to work together and continue to be prepared and work with all our partners. Mayor uh, Lisa of, uh, of El Paso, we appreciate your time this morning. We know you're very busy. Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks. And happy Mother's Day. Aw, thanks, Phil. That, that, I believe, in the business is what we call a segue. Uh, because it is that time of year again to remind the mothers in our lives just how special they are. And what else can remind mothers around the world of being special than Harry Enten, who is here with the data on the best Mother's Day gifts. Dancing, his dancing is not one of them, but also this morning's number. Moms, grandmas, moms to be oh, this weekend. We sub- is that how that was? <laughs> when she gets the sign, I'm supposed to start talking. One day I'm going to pick this up fully. Uh, just doing great, guys. Uh, however, you should be doing great because Mother's Day is on Sunday. Mother's Day is on I Sunday. No, I'm going to see. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton has some interesting numbers on Mother's Day. Harry, what's the morning number? All right, this morning's number is. 85 million, that's how many mothers in America out of 135 women in the country. We got about 85 million, and I feel like we should celebrate them. So I think the big question is, what's the best Mother's Day gift? And there's a very interesting split between women and men. Women, the the plurality say, a family visitor call, but men, the plurality say, in fact, that the best gift is flowers or plants. And I believe that we, in fact, have some right over here. That's... Love you guys. There we are. I like to see you guys. Thank so I'm going to take, so yeah, take credit. Yeah, take credit. Thank Harry and I planned this. Uh, we did I great. love this. Glad I think... we worked this out together. Oh, it's messing up my mic. I love this. Well, there Thank we you go. guys. First flowers. Now my husband's going to really have to overdo it. Well, well deserved. But I will point out an interesting fact. A share of all holiday sales for florists. In fact, Mother's Day is actually third at 24%. The top is Christmas and Hanukkah. At 29%, Valentine's Day, not surprising, at 28%. But I want to go out on a fun thing. The top stream Mother's Day songs, a song for Mama, Boys to Men, Mom, Megan Trainer, and three, Dear Mama by Tupac. All good. All good. Great songs. Great song, although... Great data. Great data. You, you, you told me that this is not necessarily how you would spell Tupac? T-U-P-A-C. Wait, here's what I want. I love the flowers, but I want this. And that is how you know. That's what I want. It's a mother. Harry Inton, thank you, you, sir. Thank you. Flowers. We'll be right back. Thank you. We were just talking about being in the service. And in the United States, uh, nearly one and a half million children have a parent in another realm who is serving time. This week, CNN Hero knows what that is like. Watch this. What we're ultimately doing is ensuring that young people who have incarcerated parents are overcoming systemic barriers and also changing the trajectory of not only their lives, but their families' lives and breaking the stereotypes and the stigma around having an incarcerated parent. Get ready for graduation? Yeah, I know, congratulations, I'm so excited! What keeps me going, it's that proud mama effect to see our scholars just achieve and accomplish and over time gain a sense of healthy confidence. 
just a little bit of support can go a very, very long way. It really is a snowball effect. Go to CNNHeroes.com to nominate your hero. Thank you guys for being with us this week. Thank you guys for the Mother's Day flowers. Happy Mother's Happy Day. Happy Mother's Day to Chelsea. And thanks for spending the week with thanks us. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Cut. And thanks to Chelsea for taking care of four kids while you were up thanks, here. Thanks, Chelsea. <laughs> thanks, Chelsea. Time to go home. Everyone have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.